Hi everyone, this is Tavernus here, welcoming you to another episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast where we talk with leadership experts and practitioners about some of the pressing issues leaders face today and how they can succeed in leading others in today's ever-changing business environment. Now, in the previous episode, I mentioned that we have a number of exciting developments ahead with this podcast, and today I'm excited to announce that we now have a sponsor for this podcast. Up Courses, an online learning platform, has signed up to sponsor a few of our episodes to celebrate the launch of their new course, The Inspirational Leader. You know, over 60% of employees say that the number one thing they want from their leader is for them to be inspirational. Yet when you ask those same employees, is your leader inspirational, only 11% say yes. Thankfully, you can be that leader who elevates employees and their performance with this powerful new online course, The Inspirational Leader. Over the course of six weeks, you'll learn the six paths to inspiration that will help you to be revered and remembered and boosting the results you get from your employees. This is a great program for anyone who's interested in learning how to drive performance by becoming that better leader you can be. So go to courses.upcourses.com. That's courses.uppcourses.com and discover how in six short weeks you can unlock employee motivation and meaningful achievement through your leadership. And as an added bonus, you're also going to help support this podcast for which you have my thanks and appreciation. And with that, let's now get to my guest for this episode, Sally Helgeson. What often gets women unstuck on this behavior is the awareness that they're talking about what they're doing could be helpful to someone else. There's been a number of studies that have shown how women face a number of challenges and obstacles in trying to move into leadership positions. But as my guest and I will discuss today, there are also certain habits women have which, although clearly beneficial at the start of their careers, are now starting to impede their ability to effectively move into and succeed at leadership. Sally Helgeson is a pioneer researcher, speaker, and consultant on women's styles of leadership and the unique contributions they make to the workplace. She focuses on honing women's leadership styles, creating inclusive company cultures, and equipping men in senior positions to fully engage women's talents and potential. Her work has been featured in Fortune, The New York Times, Fast Company, and Business Week. Sally has also served as a consultant for the United Nations, where her pioneering studies on inclusive leadership and the increasing power of individuals was the basis for the creation of a group of centers of experimentation that administers leadership programs in developing countries. Along with Marshall Goldsmith, she co-authored the book, How Women Rise, Break the 12 Habits Holding You Back from Your Next Raise, Promotion, or Job. We're going to talk to Sally about some of these habits and how women can supplant them with new behaviors that will help them to succeed at leadership. Hi, Sally. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tanvir. Good to be here. Now, I've been enjoying your writings in strategy and business for a number of years now. And when I heard that you were collaborating with Marshall Goldsmith on this book, I was not only very eager to read it, but to have you on my show to talk about it as well. And while your book is written primarily for women, I have to say that I still found it a very revealing read because I think it helps men understand where women are coming from, which I'm not afraid to admit I don't get sometimes. And to be quite honest, I don't think most men do, which is why we continue to see debates over equal pay and representation despite various studies and anecdotal stories. 
So I'm really looking forward to this discussion, which I honestly believe will benefit not only women, but men as well in getting a better understanding of these habits that you write about in your book. Of course, when it comes to the topic of the various challenges and obstacles women face in the workplace, be it equal pay, sexual harassment, or having the same access to opportunities, promotions, and leadership positions as men do, the tendency is naturally on what institutional, societal, or cultural norms might be behind these issues. But in your book, you do note that while this is a problem, there is also another aspect that women should address, especially because unlike the common challenges we often talk about women having to deal with in the workplace, this is a measure that is within every person's ability to affect change because the power to make that change rests solely within them. Namely, it has to do with behaviors we develop over time that have clearly served us well, but as we move forward in our career, ultimately end up holding us back in what you call in your book, stuckness. So before we discuss some of those 12 habits in your book, I was wondering, Sally, if you could set the stage in terms of women being stuck and why it's important to make this behavioral shift. Uh, certainly, Tanvir. And I, I, I want to start by saying I loved what you said earlier about it, the book being uh, How Women Rise, uh, the book being useful for men, because I'm certainly finding that um, since I, I've been on the road almost constantly either doing promotional in the spring or, or now speaking engagements off all along. And what I'm finding is that this book has as much value for men in terms of being effective mentors, peers, colleagues, leaders, sponsors, supporters, allies for women as it has for women in terms of helping them to identify behaviors that may be likely to get in their way and keep them stuck as they seek to fulfill their highest potential. So since uh, How Women Rise was published last April, I'm really seeing that dual potential and it's very, very exciting uh, to be part of that. Um, that's, uh, I've never, I've been out there speaking to working with women leaders for 30 years and I've never had the kind of response for male audiences uh, uh, like this book has had. But yeah, what, we're talking about the issue of stuckness with women, um, and that is being stuck in your career, being at a place where you feel like your potential is not either not being fulfilled, not that you will not reach your potential in the position you're in, or that your potential is not recognized. And that happens to women a lot. Uh, research by Catalyst shows that men tend to be judged uh, more on their potential and women on what they've actually achieved when it comes time to looking at them in terms of promotion. So that lack of being recognized for the potential that they have is a source of women getting stuck. So what we're trying to do, Marshall and I tried to do in this book, How Women Rise, is look at the role women may play in helping inadvertently keep themselves stuck by practicing behaviors that may have served them early in their careers, but are no longer helpful when they get to higher levels. And so that's really the brilliance of the template that Marshall came up with for his great book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, which was is was about and is about the behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful people. Uh, I thought the template, the idea uh, that the behaviors that serve you well early can be a problem later 
was brilliant, but I felt Marshall in that book had some of the behaviors wrong in terms of how they applied to women. Not surprising since his coaching base is about 80, 85% men. And that's what he was drawing his uh, research from. So I said, you know, let's collaborate and, and do a book uh, looking at the behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful people, uh, successful women, and keep them stuck. And the stuckness can manifest differently for women than it does for men. And one of the things that I've found in my work, and Marshall really supported me on this observation, is that one of the differences in how stuckness affects men and women, often in organizations, is men tend to get angry when they feel that they're not being uh, recognized or valued and often take action on it. And women will often internalize it and feel bad. So that, on one hand, uh, it's a positive for women because they are more likely to acknowledge that they have played a role in their own stuck stuckness than, than men. And Marshall said that certainly in his coaching experience is true. On the other hand, the feeling bad can paralyze you and make it hard to move forward. So this, this book is really about what is within women's control that they can help address uh, to really position themselves uh, to achieve what they're fully capable of achieving in, uh, as individuals. Right. And as I said, when I was reading your book, I found it was definitely illuminating and also a bit of a roadmap towards understanding this issue. And with that, I'd like to now delve into some of the 12 habits that you write about as being what's keeping women from reaching their goals, independent, as we said earlier, from those external factors found in various workplaces or industries. But before we do, I was wondering if you could just very briefly describe these 12 habits before we dive deeper into discussing a few that I'd love to talk a bit more about with you. Okay. Uh, first uh, is a reluctance to claim your achievements, and that is uh, always wanting to be sure that other people get credit, even if it means you don't accept the credit. Uh, the second is expecting, and this is one of the big behaviors, expecting others to spontaneously notice and value your contributions without your necessarily having to draw attention to them yourself. Uh, the third behavior uh, is overvaluing expertise as opposed to making expertise along with engaging allies uh, and getting recognized for your work, the sort of three um, three stool legs of success, if you will. So that overemphasizing uh, expertise, failing to enlist allies from day one, uh, again, that sort of is, is allied with the overvaluing expertise, building rather than leveraging relationships, building wonderful networks, but then failing necessarily to use them to achieve tactical or strategic ends, uh, perfectionism, um, uh, which is hardly needs any introduction because women are, are so known for it putting your job before your career, investing everything in a job without necessarily thinking how well that's going to position you for where you want to go. Uh, the What we call in the book, the disease to please, the desire, the, the feeling that you have to, it's your job to make everybody happy, which can make it very difficult to assert boundaries and hold people to account for what you expect of them. Uh, two communication behaviors, 
One is minimizing, you know, that's that sort of, I just have one thing to say, or uh, this will only take one second. It can be verbal or it can be physical minimizing to making yourself small. Uh, And the other, which sounds like the opposite, but really is in some ways quite similar, is too much, too much information, too many words, too much background. Uh, This is particularly problematic in organizations where there's a sort of crisp, professional tone um, and it can really run women into trouble. And uh, ruminating, that is going over and over, uh, being concerned about, um, you know, really having things that have where you have messed up, taking it very deeply and personally and going over and over and over it um, and beginning to sort of go down a rabbit hole of, uh, of feeling bad bad. And then the 12th one we have is letting your radar distract you, which uh, can take a little bit of explanation. So we may dig down uh, into that, but it's just basically noticing a lot of people's emotions around you and sort of losing the thread of where you are and getting distracted. Uh, so those are the 12 behaviors. And um, and they really come from a combination of, of Marshall's coaching practice, but also I've been doing leadership uh, workshops and programs for women all over the world for 30 years. And this is what I see and this is what I hear about over and over are variations on these behaviors. So it was really through that experience and that extraordinary archive I have of, of thousands of, of interviews uh, that I've done as a result of those programs uh, combined with Marshall's um, coaching. That's that's where our research on these came from. Great. And, you know, as I pointed out earlier on, Sally, obviously I'm not the target for your book. It's really for women. But as I said, I think there's value also for men in reading this book. And when I was reading it, one of the things I found valuable was to put it in a context that we can then see it in action. In my case, I was reading your book in the context of my three daughters in mind, and it helped give me that context of how to better understand these habits. But also because as a dad, I want to make sure that I'm helping to raise strong, independent women who can take care of themselves. So naturally, there were a few of these 12 habits that really resonated with me. The first being habit one, the reluctance to claim your achievements. Now, I've noticed that my daughters tend to be very coy about sharing with family and friends their achievements. When they're asked about what's new, and I point out how they won this award or they earned a scholarship from here and so forth. Now, I only make sure to plant the seed just by staying the headline. So my friends and families have to ask my daughters, what award or what scholarship? And they have to be the ones to share their accomplishment. Now, on the other hand, my nephew, when I ask him about what's new, he doesn't hesitate to tell me about how well his hockey team is doing or about his ambitions to get into the next league level. Not in a peacocking fashion, but more in a matter-of-fact fashion. This is my plans. This is what things are going on. So I have seen this habit in action. So how do women overcome this habit? And on a personal note, am I getting this right in terms of helping my daughters get past this themselves? I think you're getting it exactly right in terms of helping them because what helps women who have a problem with this is practicing doing it. They feel they don't do it, so they become uncomfortable. They feel like, oh, I sound like I'm all about me. Um, and and they, they refrain from doing it, so they feel uncomfortable. And it's really good exactly what you're doing is getting 
them to practice talking about what they're doing and not being afraid of, you know, being clear about that. The other thing that I find really helpful is what your nephew's doing is if you're saying he's not being, you know, Mr. Peacock or anything, he's sharing information. He's sharing information that he believes another people, uh, another person might find interesting, that another person might find useful, uh, that might be a place for common ground. So I always, especially with younger women who are very reluctant to claim their achievements, a say, think of it as information. Think of it as information that can be valuable for someone else to know. Maybe you're talking about something your team has done or something you're doing in school and the other person, you know, one of their children will have a similar issue. So you're sharing information that can be helpful to them. What often gets women unstuck on this behavior is the awareness that they're talking about what they're doing could be helpful to someone else because that's often their orientation. I've worked with some um, girl schools that do a superb job of teaching science to girls. And one of the ways that they really get girls engaged is by having an emotional component where they feel like they're helping somebody by solving a problem. You know, the dog can't get across the road because of whatever, you know, and, and so they're doing a math problem that's based on helping. So that, that keeping that as information can be really, really useful, but also getting them to practice talking about what they're doing, what they've achieved, um, and find a way that they're comfortable with. Often when women, when I ask, you know, women in organizations, younger women who are reluctant on this, I say, you know, why, why, why are you reluctant to talk about this? Well, if I have to be like that jerk down the hall, no, thank you. Well, guess what? You don't have to be like that jerk down the hall. You can find a way uh, to talk about what you're doing and what you've achieved that's that's not boastful, um, you know, so don't look to the worst models. Right. And I think this helps articulate when we see a lot online of what we need, especially from male leaders and so forth, is to be more advocates for women to help them rise to the ranks and really tap into their potential. Because as leaders, that's what we want to do. We want to get the full potential of every employee's is that we have to understand that being an advocate means that we're not being some white knight, but more an effective coach or even a cheerleader on the sidelines helping our female employees speak up about the value they create for our organization. In fact, there's a line you write in your book that I really like and I plan on sharing regularly with my daughters, and that is this line that you write, if you don't find a way to speak about the value of what you're doing, you send a message that you don't put much value in it, and so if you don't value it, why should anyone else? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So it's just getting getting people comfortable with that. And, you know, what you're doing is very strong. And I, I, I find, you know, it's interesting your response, because I find so many people, both men and women that I hear from who say, this is so helpful with my teenage, uh, with my teenage daughters. So um, that that that's been that's been pretty fascinating to me because it, and it, nor is it surprising because these behaviors start early. Uh, mm-hmm. Teenagers tend to be conformist. And if the other girls are, you know, you know, reluctant, or as you put it, coy, that's a very good definition of it in talking about their achievements, um, then girls will get that message. So, 
uh, nipping some of these behaviors, especially the ones about talking about achievement or some of the communication behaviors and perfectionism, certainly um, nipping those early is really a helpful, uh, helpful thing to do for girls. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I was just reading a few weeks ago in prepping for this interview today, Sally, there's a study It was really disheartening. And I actually talked to my wife about it from her perspective and so forth. And they found that the for girls, their sense of self-worth and self-confidence takes a hit at age nine, which I was so like shocked and uh, and really dismayed by because it shows why especially if you have daughters, you know, you really as a father have to check in when they're teenage years because already at age nine, they're starting to undervalue themselves. They're starting to think the things that we as men might think is something that's worth expressing value for. Again, not peacocking, but just being feeling proud because it's something you worked hard at is not something that girls think is necessarily worth putting value to. And obviously that's going to affect how they then enter into the workforce and how they present the contributions they're going to make in the organization, which again, this is important, not just in terms of the future, but also in terms of today and how leaders are interacting with their female employees and making sure they really are filling that uh, leadership pipeline to help continue their organization grow. Yeah. And not just assuming, you know, there's a real link between that uh, reluctance to claim your achievements and then expecting others to spontaneously notice and value what you do. And one of the examples that I use in the book, but there are, I see variations on this all the time, was a young woman who was, uh, you know, very top hire at a law firm in New York City, top law firm in New York City. And after, I guess it was five years or so, um, the other, you know, sort of high achievers in her cohort who were all male, uh, were put on a junior partner, and she was not. And she was very, very discouraged about that. And she started to look around, looking at clients that the firm had, uh, their general counsel's offices, which is a typical path for women who don't make partner in firms, that they go to uh, the, the GC, the general counsel's office, and a client. So she'd gotten a number of offers, and she tentative offers. So she went to tell her practice head, you know, that she'd had a couple of these offers. And he said, well, what would it take to keep you? And he said, if uh, if you were, you know, uh, made partner, would that would that keep you? And she said, well, yes. And he said, well, why didn't you say so? And and she went away from that thinking, well, why did he think I was working 80 hours a week for five years if I didn't want to be made partner? But what what she found was, you know, that he said those four men in her cohort who were made partner, who were sort of her entry class, had all been talking about it practically from the day that they arrived, that their goal was to achieve partner. And they were doing this, that, and the other to achieve partner. And her feeling was, if I just, you know, work really hard and do excellent work, um, they'll understand I should be made partner. And, you know, it's kind of unbecoming to start endlessly talk about being made partner. But this was this was the consequence. And then she said years later, when she got actually on the committee at the firm that uh, decided on uh, offers of partnership, she said she saw the same thing still playing out that, you know, the men were talking constantly. And, you know, in the partner in the meetings, they'd say, you know, we're going to lose this guy. 
if we don't make him partner this year because he's this is what he wants. He's made it very clear. She said and the women would be doing great work, but because they weren't you know, necessarily saying I want to be partner this year. Um, you know, they, they were expecting others to spontaneously notice and value what they were contributing and connect the dots that what it meant was that they wanted to be partners. So, you know, it can have all kinds of tangential effects that, that really begin also to, to affect the culture of, of organizations or firms. I love that you brought up that story, Sally, because it actually is a perfect segue to the next habit I want to discuss with you, which is the second habit, habit number two, expecting others to notice and reward. Again, from my own experiences, speaking with some women leaders, I've seen this issue myself crop up where women expect a meritocratic work environment where their work should speak for itself, that I don't need to draw attention to what I'm doing because others see the value of what I'm creating. And I do see this tendency also manifesting itself sometimes in my girls where I have to push them to speak up and make sure whether it's their boss at a summer's job or a teacher at their school recognizes that what they're bringing to the table so they don't get taken for granted. And this does play, a, like as we're seeing, a way into that first habit of not wanting to speak up for their accomplishments. Yeah, very, very, very similarly connected. And, you know, I first became aware of this years ago. I was doing a study for some partnership firms. It wasn't for strategy and business, but it was something else I was writing. And uh, when I talked with the women who were at the most senior level in the firms, one of the questions I said, you know, what are the women here best at, the younger women who have p potential to be big players in the firms? What are their, what are they best at and what's their biggest challenge? And they were pretty consistent in their answers. They're best at doing really high quality work, that overemphasis on expertise, that, you know, very conscientious, showing up, working hard, going the extra mile. And they're worst at drawing attention to it. And and then when I asked the young ladies, or the young women, you know, what, what holds you back? They'd say, you know, well, I believe that if I do great work, people should notice. Well, you know, they probably should. And in a perfect world, they would. But people don't. And uh, especially today, even more today, people are so busy, so distracted, so much operating in a kind of overwhelm that really expecting other people to notice uh, the details of what you've done is 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 pretty unrealistic. And, you know, once again, you need to get accustomed to saying it. What holds women back often and I hear this over and over. Well, it's perceived of as different when women talk about what they're what they've achieved than when men talk about it. You know, if women talk about it, they're seen as too ambitious. Uh, you know, if men talk about it, it's kind of expected. And you know what? Guess what? Maybe that's true. And often it is true, although I think it's increasingly I think it's, you know, less true than it used to be in the past. But so what? So what if somebody says, oh, I think she's a little too ambitious, too bad. Should you back off proactively and just put yourself in this completely passive position where you're hoping people notice what you're doing and contributing um, because you're afraid someone somewhere might say that they think you're too ambitious? Uh, as long as women let themselves let themselves be held back by that kind of fear, um, things aren't going to change. So it's really important to get comfortable uh, speaking about these things. And uh, and it only is comfortable, and this is part of what I've learned from Marshall, is through repetition, through doing it, through doing it over and over and over, through practicing, saying, hey, you know, I'm trying to get better at um, – 
claiming my achievements. Um, can I try this out on you? Can I talk a little bit about, I'm, I'm sure your daughters aren't going to do this with you because that's not how kids operate. But, but in terms of the workplace, you know, get, get somebody who can help you, um, and, and, and try it out on them. So, you know, it's really, if you identify something like this, you want to get comfortable changing it. And, and that's how good habits are formed. You know, in this chapter two, there was a great story, and I've actually shared it. As soon as I finished reading it, I actually stopped and went and shared it with my daughters, and I kept it in my mind as something I want to keep encouraging to work on. And it's based off of a story you share of a young male analyst from the Middle East and how chance encounter with a senior vice president in an elevator helped him get on course to get that dream job that he wanted to do in his organization. So I was wondering if you could share that story and what that exercise is, because I thought it was incredibly invaluable. Yeah, sure. And that, that's that's gotten a lot, a lot of good response. This happened, I was doing some work with an international banking institution and the the uh, sponsor champion for the, um, for the Women's uh, Leadership Network was uh, a man from China. And he shared that story, talked about um, one of the young men in the organization who had been, he was at, in, um, I think, Geneva at their global headquarters, and he happened to step into the elevator with, um, I don't know if it was the CEO, but it was certainly at the level of the CFO of this whole massive, you know, world-famous uh, financial institution, and um, and the 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 top guy said something like, you know, how are you today? And he just held out his hand. He said, I'm whatever his name was. He said, um, I work for you in X. Uh, what, uh, I really hope to achieve is to be head of setting up financing in Africa, in telecoms. I've got, you know, these relationships in telecoms. Um, I, um, you know, this experience in Africa and that's what I'm doing here. I'm trying to achieve, uh, put myself in a position to do that. And when he stepped off the elevator, the CFO said, you know, um, uh, gave him a card and he said, I want you to call this number of person, this person, and say that I told you to call them because you should be uh, definitely on track to do that for us. So, you know, it's because what he did, I think the guy said something like, you know, what do you do for us or something? And, um, you know, instead of just saying, well, I'm in financial services or saying, um, you know, giving his job title or something like that, which is, is, is kind of, you know, the safe course to take in that position. Uh, he, he said his job title, but then said right away, this is why I'm here. This is what I want to achieve. This is, and this is why I'm suited to achieve it. Um, so it was, you know, having, it was sort of the, because it actually happened on an elevator. It was sort of the perfect idea of an elevator pitch and that the elevator pitch is, you know, a description of what you do and what you hope to do, what, why it positions you for what you really want to achieve. And, and what this young guy from the Middle East had is he had it down. He had clearly, you know, you just don't spontaneously come out in, you know, 60 seconds with the absolute perfect thing to say that positions you and changes your career. Um, you know, he had rehearsed that. He knew what he wanted and he had figured out a way to articulate it. And he saw a chance and he took it and it worked. 
Um, so that's one of the things I really work with women on in workshops is finding, I don't call it an elevator pitch, but it's, you know, a statement of intention. You know, this is what I do and this is where I want it to position me and then get really comfortable with that. Get it as concise and clear as you can. You know, you've got, a you know, 60 seconds at most, get it out, get it down and have it ready so that when the situation arises, you can do that. And and there's a perfect example of something that you can use the people around you to practice so you can get comfortable, so you can, you know, know what you're going to say, say it, um, you know, just leave it there. Not, you know, a lot of backstory, not a lot of explaining, not a lot of, I hope, sir, I didn't take up too much of your time with and all that kind of useless stuff, but just say it. And, um, it really is, 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 is very powerful and can make you feel powerful and prepared for any encounter. Absolutely. I mean, when I read, I thought this was just brilliant. And like I said, I immediately went over and started talking to both my wife and my daughters about it because it's such a great way to position yourself in a way that, you know, women don't have to feel intimidated that I'm, I'm peacocking or whatever, or even men too, that this is just a great way to, you know, articulate your value. And, you know, as I do with my talks, when it's something that's really a value that you want people to remember, you repeat it. So again, it's this idea that you create, for lack of a better word, an elevator speech that essentially states what you do, what you want to do in the future, and why you believe you're the right person to do it. It's just brilliant. So with that, I want to go on to the next habit because this is something we hear, and I write a lot about this as in context of how do we succeed in today's workplaces. And it's something that we consistently read about as saying that this is something that women uh, have a natural affinity for, and that is building relationships. And again, as I said in many of my leadership talks, I bring up this point about how critical the ability to foster and build relationships has become today's leadership, which is why there's an inherent need on the part of many organizations to figure out how to get more women into their leadership development pipeline. Yes. But as we said at the beginning, and as you briefly summarized, one of these habits that women develop that might help them in the earlier stages of their career, but as they move forward, can actually serve to hold them back, has to deal with the way they build relationships. So what is it about building relationships that women are not capitalizing on in terms of tapping into their full potential and ability to succeed? Well, that's exactly the right phrase that women aren't capitalizing on that. I've been aware of this for for quite a while. Uh, goes back, you know, in in 1990, I published a book called The Female Advantage: Women's Ways of Leadership, in which I tried to define what women's leadership at its best looked like by doing diary studies by some of some of the most successful women leaders who were around at that time. There weren't that many. Uh, of course, uh, in the late 80s. But uh, when that book was published in 1990, you know, it was very clear to me that one of the great strengths women had to contribute was their ability to build strong relationships, uh, relationships with tremendous loyalty that went on for a long time, not transactional, really deep, valuable kinds of relationships, and that these were a great a source of emotional support and strength for women. Um, but they also, you know, gave many women often a very robust uh, and and diverse network within organizations or with customers, clients, suppliers. So um, and and, you know, that was back in 1990 when I identified that really dismissed as a soft skill. Well, relationships, no, you know, the, that's not a leadership skill. That's a an HR skill or a soft skill. 
not considered that anymore. Today, you know, the ability to build strong relationships is seen as, a, you know, number one leadership uh, capability, along with, you know, the ability to think strategically. So, as re- what what ha- was a kind of puzzle to me was, well, if women are really good at building relationships, which many, you know, th- they tend to be not saying all, you know, we all know women who are terrible at it. And we all know men who are great at it. But if women really do have a great strength in building relationships um, and relationships have become increasingly recognized as a leadership skill, why aren't women benefiting more from their skill in building relationships? And what I began to realize uh, watching and listening and hearing stories from the women I worked with was that w- women, te- whereas women do build strong relationships, they tend to be very hesitant about engaging the people they have relationships with in helping them achieve either tactical or strategic goals. That is tactical goals that have specifically to do with the work that they have now or strategic goals that have to do with what they hope to achieve going forward in the future, how they see their career as unfolding. Um, and there's, when I ask women about that, you know, I'll hear, well, you know, I don't want, I want, I don't want people to think I'm using them or, you know, I want people to know I really like and value them for themselves as if this were an either or. And what is fascinating to me about that is it completely discounts the fact that there may be great valuable, great value for other people, Uh, in being leveraged as part of your network, um, if you move into a position of real authority and influence, that's their lucky day. They happen to know you, and oh, by the way, they've done some favors for you, and now you're at the top of this, that, or the other. That's a very good thing for them. So there's kind of a a reluctance almost to see yourself as a a player there. You know, I don't want to play the game. I want people to really know I like them. Um, Whereas, in fact, liking, you know, having people know you know, people are going to know you like them anyway. I mean, that's pretty hard to fake. Um, but thinking of yourself like, uh, you know, as a potential resource for other people, uh, rather than just somebody who's going hat in hand asking for favors, seeing that reciprocity and how that can help build both people's careers and satisfactions uh, is something that that women are often um, reluctant to look at. And what's what's interesting about that and shows the capability women actually have for doing this is that women tend to have very little reluctance about leveraging relationships when it comes with doing doing something on a volunteer or nonprofit basis. So that you'll see a woman who's in, say, financial services or hospital administration is very reluctant to leverage relationships, but very glad to twist arms as she tries to get people to, um, you know, make donations to a domestic violence uh, shelter or something like that. So, so it's really sort of the fear of being seen as self-interested that will hold women back. Um, again, underplaying the recognition that that in engaging in a situation where people are doing favors reciprocally for one another and leveraging the power of the relationships that they have is is usually and almost always good for both people. Right. You know, this just demonstrates why, Sally, I found your book so insightful and, and why there were so many of these habits that I was reading that I was taking notes on because I wanted to learn more about it. 
Uh, but there was one that really leapt out at me when I read about it, and it was the habit number seven, the perfection trap. Yeah. Now, as you write in this chapter, women more than men tend to get hung up with getting things right or perfect. And as you allude to in your book, this idea actually goes back to differences in how boys and girls are taught in school. Now, one of the reasons why this habit really grabbed my attention was because it reminds me of a study done in the education field looking at what teachers communicate to students in terms of providing feedback. And what the researchers found is that when a girl does well on a test or an assignment, the teacher will praise her for being smart or intelligent. Consequently, when they don't do well later on, they take this to mean, well, maybe they're not as smart as they thought they were. Yeah. Conversely, when boys do well, they are praised for their effort. And as such, when they don't do well, they chalk it up to not working as hard or that they need to put in more effort. And I remember reading about the study's findings a few years ago, and as a parent of three daughters, it really jarred me. And I remember asking my, them, my oldest daughter was in grade seven at the time, that when they did well on a test, what did I say to them? And each one of them told me how, that I, what I told them was that I was very proud of how hard they worked to get that mark. And I could tell you, Sally, I, I really breathed a sigh of relief when I heard that. And this is a study find that I've actually shared with a number of women leaders that I, I've spoken with. And it was amazing to see how many of them, you could see it just percolating that thought and starting to realize the number of times in their lives where they probably got that kind of feedback and how in a subsequent initiative, when they didn't maybe do as well, they chalked it up to a lack of competency rather than or capability rather than just being, well, maybe there's just a different pivot you have to take and just keep at it. But the second reason this chapter struck a chord with me is because it reminds me of my oldest daughter who very much exhibits this tendency to want to get things perfect. That while it's fine for others to aim for, well, I wouldn't say, well, good enough, let's say, at times, she gets a little caught up in wanting to make sure everything is just so because she hates the idea of making a mistake. So how do women override this tendency, especially if it's a product of their education where their teachers might have unknowingly put too much emphasis on their current ability instead of on their potential? Well, exactly. And, you know, it's not just schools, but what we found uh, was in research demonstrated that in organizations, women tend to be rewarded and promoted based on being precise and correct, whereas men tended to be rewarded and promoted based on boldness, relationship building, big picture thinking, all kinds of other factors. So that, but the women tended to be rewarded. So they're not just getting the message often at school, sometimes at home, uh, but they're getting the message in their organization. So that what they're learning from their experience is if I do everything right, things will turn out for me. Um, so that puts this tremendous pressure on women often to get all the details right and really sweating the small stuff. And it's a very difficult a tendency um, to overcome what what I've heard, you know, I was in a very insightful uh, conversation uh, about a month ago with the head of HR, uh, the chief human resources officer at a huge tech company that was, I think, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. And she said that what she had done, and I think there is a lot of wisdom in this, and I've been talking about it recently. She said they have such a problem with the women, perfectionism in the women, especially the women engineers, not being willing to let something go, just 
keeping at it and keeping at it and keeping at it, trying to make every detail perfect, tie it up with a bow. She said that one of the things that they've begun to do when they identify in their assessments that they've got a perfectionist on their hands. And she said, um, you know, by far the majority, about over 70% of the people we see with perfectionistic uh, tendencies are women. She said, what we try to do is put them in a lot of stretch assignments and move them around so that they can't be perfect because they're always doing something that's a little bit new and a little bit over their heads because they haven't done it yet. They don't have the entire skill kit in order to do it. So they don't have the opportunity to master whatever that skill is um, because once they begin to get better at it, they get moved. She said, because what we're primarily, you know, perfectionism has many, many costs. I want to say one thing. Perfectionism is probably the classic what got you here won't get you their behavior for women, because particularly given this being rewarded for being precise and correct, it really tends to help you early in your career. Oh, she does great work. Let's you know move her here. Um, but it can really get in. Uh, it's it's a it's a killer at more senior levels. Uh, the perfectionism is partly because, as we're talking about with this woman at, uh, at the HR, the HR executive, it can make you chronically risk averse. When you begin to get comfortable only turning in things that are perfect, you get more and more risk averse because, you know, anything risky is going to up the chances that it's not going to be perfect. So chronic risk aversion is a real, um, you know, potential outcome, uh, but uh, in a difficulty delegating for sure, because how can you give a job to someone else? They might not do a perfect job. Um, but also the creation of stress for yourself, uh, and for other people. And, and I think that's why it's really helpful with, with teenagers to try to really work on this perfectionistic, uh, characteristic because they can create so much stress for themselves by their expectations um, and their overreactions when they get something wrong. Uh, and um, But at senior levels, you create enormous stress for other people as well. And, you know, I, I would say I've, I've done this for 30 years, never once met a person who said, um, I work for a perfectionistic boss and I love it. So you really need to work on that behavior. And I love this tendency of putting people in, in sort of situations where, um, where they didn't have the skills to necessarily guarantee a great outcome and then keep moving and, and, and help them get comfortable with that. Uh, so they're not defining everything as either total success or complete failure. Another kind of either or thinking that gets you into trouble. Excellent advice, Allie. And again, I want to thank you for coming on my show. I really did learn a lot, and I'm hoping you opened and broadened a greater understanding, not just for our women listeners, but also for the men out there who may have some women in their organization who may be leadership potentials and now have a better understanding of what drives them, how they see and understand things, and how to better relate to them to help them overcome those habits and truly become the kind of leaders they have the potential to be. So thank you so much for helping me and our listeners better understand what women can do to rise to the next stage in their careers. That's great, Tamri. I really enjoyed our discussion. It's been very uh, warm and very rich. And uh, I hope uh, that your male and female listeners are inspired by uh, what we've talked about in terms of the book, How Women Rise. 
So, some revealing and thought-provoking insights for both women and men, and we only touched on a handful of those 12 habits Sally and Marshall discussed in their book. To learn more about Sally and Marshall's book, How Women Rise, along with some articles that touch on some of the ideas that we discussed in today's episode, check out the show notes for this episode at tanvinasir.com lbc. That's T-A-N-V-E-E-R-N-A-S-E-E-R.com slash L-B-C. And that's a wrap for another episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. And again, this episode has been sponsored by UpCourses, an online learning platform where you'll find the Inspirational Leader course. Remember, over 60% of employees say the number one thing they want from their leader is for them to be inspirational. Through this online course, you'll learn in just six weeks how to boost employee performance by being that inspirational leader they're hoping you'll be. So go to courses.upcourses.com. That's courses.uppcourses.com and learn to be revered, remembered, and deliver results as that inspirational leader you have locked inside. Now, if you have any questions or comments, drop me a note through the contact form on my website and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review my podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you find and listen to this show. And don't forget, you can also now listen to this show on Spotify as well. You can find links to subscribe to these platforms on the podcast page at tavernasir.com LBC. And with that, I'm Tavernasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.